Uh, good morning, Redemption. Now, Jim was wrong. I'm not instituting vegan communion, but I am instituting a, an ice cream baptism. Who's ready to celebrate after the service today? That's... We are having, no, we're not baptizing people in ice cream, but we are going to have ice cream, sweet treats, cold drinks there uh, right after the service today at 10.30 a.m., baptism party, and we are going to be ready to celebrate. Uh, I love in Luke chapter 15, Jesus talks about God being a pursuing God, a God who goes after the lost coin, goes after the lost sheep, goes after the lost child, and when God's children come home, he throws a party. Jesus says over and over again through that passage that when someone comes to faith, when someone enters into life with Jesus, when someone steps into the kingdom, and that's what baptism is a sign of, is a sign of entering into union with Christ and the life of his kingdom. Jesus says when that happens, all the angels in heaven throw a party, a massive bash, and so we want to join with heaven. Heaven on earth is in heaven here today. We want to throw a celebration and celebrating all those who are saying this, man, I'm uniting my life with Jesus. And so be ready to celebrate after the service. Uh, just a quick little detail there. We are going to give you, uh, if your kids are in child care, we're going to have a 15-minute window. We get out by 10.15. You can go get your kids come back. Um, so we want our kids to be able to be a part of that celebration and that party and get to see uh, this sign of people uniting their lives with Christ. So let's celebrate and party it up after the service today. All right, well, 44 BC is the year of the most famous betrayal in history. Julius Caesar, lord of the Roman Empire, kind of lord of the known world at the time, was assassinated by 60 senators. He was stabbed in the back, both literally and figuratively. He was literally stabbed 23 times, but figuratively, he was betrayed by those who he trusted. The deepest wound had to have come when he realized that Brutus, his best friend, his most trusted one, was leading the charge. In the famous words of Shakespeare's version of this scene, as uh, some of his dying words are, et tu, Brute, meaning even you, Brutus. Now, here's the question I want to ask this morning, is what if Julius had seen it coming? What if Julius had known, say someone slipped him a letter with the secret plot that was going down, what if he had been aware of what was happening and uh, known when and how it was going to take place, that as it was uh, about to transpire, he was in the loop? Would he not have avoided it? Would he not have had uh, the secret police in hiding, maybe hunting down the conspirators beforehand or ready, waiting in hiding at the event to catch them in the act? Surely he would have. The reason I say all this is because we are going to be looking at a, another betrayal today. In fact, I was wrong earlier when I said the most famous betrayal in history. It wasn't actually in 44 BC. It was a generation later. And it was another JC, not Julius Caesar, but Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking today at Jesus' betrayal by Judas. We're in John chapter 13, and so if you have your Bible and you want to turn there or on your phone, uh, but we're in John chapter 13 in our series on the gospel of John this morning, and today we come to the scene where Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and the craziest thing about it, we find, is that Jesus sees it coming. 
It's as if he got the secret letter filling him in on the plot. He knows the when and the where and how it's gonna transpire, what's going down and who's actually gonna betray him to lead the charge. And yet, Jesus doesn't back away. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't call on the heavenly host to take out the conspirators. Rather, Jesus goes knowingly. Because what we're gonna see today is that Jesus is sovereign even over the cross, even over his betrayal because Jesus allows himself to be betrayed so that you and I could know ourselves as his beloved. The title for the message this morning is Betraying Jesus. And what we're gonna see this morning is Jesus' posture towards you and I, even in the midst of our betrayal. Let's open up to John chapter 13, verse 21. We read, <clears throat> after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified. Like the word testified, it's like courtroom imagery. Jesus is testifying about what is about to happen. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him uh, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, it's John, that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Well, the first thing we see here is that Jesus knows he is about to get a stab in the back. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. He calls it out beforehand. Jesus says they're sitting at dinner. This is the same scene last week that we saw where Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, and they're all at this Passover feast together. This is um, shortly before Jesus is about to be betrayed. And Jesus calls us out. He says, one of you will betray me. And when he says here, one of you will betray me, he's talking about the disciples, the 12. This is his inner circle, his most intimate crew. The deepest wounds often come from those closest to us. Like your best friend can hurt you in a way some random troll on YouTube or whatever can't, right? Like those who we're closest with, there's a vulnerability there because we've trusted them, we've entrusted ourselves to them. He says it's one of those, one of part of his inner circle that's going to betray him. So the disciples are confused. This is they looked at one another. You can imagine the scene where the disciples are kind of staring at each other going, who's he talking about? Like, what's going on? Who's it going to be? What is he talking about? And so Peter, we're told, like Peter kind of glances across the table at John when it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. He calls himself the beloved disciple. And so uh, Peter's like, hey, you're, you're, you're his favorite kid, whatever. You're, you're his, you know, like you're the disciple he loved. You're sitting right by him. Ask him, who's he talking about? And so we read here, it tells us that John leans in. So John leans into Jesus. So you can imagine they're whispering and John's like, who is it? Who is it, Jesus? And Jesus gives him a sign. Now, this is the one who I, I'm gonna dip this morsel of bread, the one I'm gonna essentially serve communion to, this bread and this wine, a sign of my coming death. Now, it's interesting to me here that Jesus doesn't shame Judas. He calls out publicly what's about to happen. Someone's going to betray him. 
but he only gives John a sign. So everyone knows someone's gonna betray him. The disciples all know, but John knows which one is gonna betray him. Jesus doesn't shame Judas, but he is testifying and calling out what's going on to show that he's sovereign, even in the midst of what is about to take place. And yet, this scene shows us that Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. It says that, here in verse 21, that he was troubled in his spirit. He was distressed. He was in agony in part because it was one of his own, one close to him, who was going to put the knife between the shoulders, so to speak, right? Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. And it sucks to get stabbed in the back. In the Cold War, uh, in Central Europe, uh, many, and many church leaders found out later, it was discovered later, were actually KGB informants. So uh, in Hungary, for example, after the Cold War, records came out and they realized, whoa, a number of KGB informants had been church leaders. So there's one story actually of a pastor who uh, found himself um, thrown in jail and all of their churches shut down and the believers scattered. And he realized, man, the only way they could have known was if it was him. My co-leader, the person I was leading with, it would be like me selling out Jim Mullins or something like that, right? Like, like, and you can imagine the sense of betrayal for this leader and for the church community as a whole going, what happened? There was, man, they got, we got stabbed in the back. And the reason they use that phrase, stabbed in the back, is that it's not stabbed in the front because you don't see it coming. You don't see it coming when it's someone close to you. And yet this pastor said that as he sat in that jail cell and as he had all that time to think about what was lost and the bitterness and the resentment and the anger. He said that the thing that sustained him, the thing that gave him comfort was knowing that Jesus had been betrayed too. That Jesus had been betrayed too. And some of you this morning need to know, you need to know that Jesus has been betrayed too. Like you've been betrayed. You found those text messages on your husband's phone from another woman. You caught your wife in the arms of another man. Some of you this morning, you've been betrayed. You had, I've talked with some of you, you had that business partner who, man, he took the profit and ran and pushed you out of the business. The thing you built together. Some of you have had close friends who you have shared your uh, deepest, darkest parts of your story with and they turned around and they went and they gossiped about it and they shared it with others and they aired your dirty laundry and you felt betrayed, exposed. And when that happens, it catches you by surprise because again, you don't see it coming. It's someone you've been vulnerable with, someone you've trusted. And so those wounds cut deepest. It really stings. And the hard part is, is, man, you can slip into the cycle of bitterness and resentment. There are some of you this morning who might feel trapped in unforgiveness. And the beauty and power of the gospel that I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus is with you. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He even saw it coming, and yet he entered into the reality of betrayal so that he could be with you in the midst of those places that you've been wounded by those who you loved. And because Jesus is with you in your betrayal, there's hope. He can actually set you free from the prison and cycle of bitterness and unforgiveness and all. He can set you free from that cycle. 
But the other thing that's hopeful is it means that your betrayal doesn't have the last word on your story, right? Jesus' resurrection means that betrayal doesn't have the last word. Like, spoiler alert, it does not end well for Judas, right? (laughs) But it does for Jesus. And resurrection means, though you may be in a season of the weight of betrayal, I want you to hear today that you can know God is the keeper of your reputation. And so you don't need to fight to defend your reputation and yourself against them. You may feel like, man, I've I've got to set this straight, but it's going to spiral out into more. You can trust God with it because Jesus has entered into our betrayal. And yet he has risen on the other side victorious. And his kingdom means that your betrayal, the ways you've been betrayed does not have the last word on your story. And so you can look to Jesus and trust him with your reputation and you can experience his presence in the painful parts of your story. Now, Jesus speaks here though, not only to those who have been betrayed, but also to those of us who have betrayed. Let's keep going here. Um, Back in verse 26, let's actually pick back up in verse 26 again, where where Jesus answered, the the one who will betray me, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Here we see that Jesus sees you. That thing you think that you're about to get away with, Jesus sees you, right? I love here that Jesus sees Judas. Jesus, it says he took the morsel and he gave it to Judas. And you gotta imagine Jesus is looking at Judas as he gives it to him. And Judas takes the morsel and he receives it. And you gotta imagine Judas is looking Jesus in the eye when he receives the morsel. My daughter Aiden told me a joke a while back. It was, uh, you know, so Jesus and the 12 disciples and they show up at this restaurant. Jesus tells the waiter, he's like, hey, I'd like a table for 26. And the waiter's like, well, there's only 13 of you. And Jesus is like, yeah, but we all want to sit on the same side. (laughs) 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 Now, most of our images of the scene of the Last Supper have been shaped by that painting, that famous Leonardo da Vinci painting. And he does that because he wants to see all their faces. But the reality is they're not all sitting on the same side. They're sitting around the table and they're looking at one another. And the crazy thing to me is Jesus sees Judas as he gives him communion. And Judas sees Jesus as he receives it. And what was it like to be Judas and to know that he knows? Like he, he just called it out. He knows. To have been plotting and conspiring against Jesus and then to be caught in the act, so to speak, exposed, even before it happens. What is running through Judas's mind as he receives the bread and the wine from Jesus? Now, <clears throat> my kids like to think they can get away with stuff, right? Uh, they're always trying to be sneaky and, man, but the, the thing they don't know is I know. Like, we know, me and my wife, like, we know, right? Like, they're trying to get their hand in the cookie jar. They're climbing up on the fridge to get the scissors. But often I'm watching, and partly it's sometimes because I want to catch them in the act, right? And so sometimes I'll tell Holly, I'm like, I'll testify to Holly. I'll be like, hey, watch, he's about to betray me. (laughs) And they'll come up and they'll they'll turn around and they'll, with all the candy in their hand or, you know, with the iPad and it's after screen time. And like, I see you. 
right? Like you think, you think you're being sneaky, but I see you. I think that's kind of the, the picture here. Like Judas thinks he's being sneaky. He thinks he's got his plans all in order, but Jesus is going, I see you. I know what you're about to do. And the reality is there are some of you this morning who need to know Jesus sees you. You may be on the verge of betraying Jesus, of turning your back on him, of turning towards things that Jesus knows will lead to your destruction. And you need to hear this morning that Jesus sees you. It could be that bottle that you're about to go back to. It could be the things that you're gonna kind of swipe on your, your screen, on your phone after service later today, right? And for some of you, you may be contemplating walking away from the table, planning to leave the communion of disciples of Jesus's followers together, maybe of really turning your back on Jesus. And Jesus knows that's a road that leads to destruction, to turn away from Christ. And yet he sees you in the midst of it this morning. You need to know that he sees you. And maybe for you, you're looking at turning away and it could be because like Judas, maybe Jesus hasn't met your expectations of what you thought a Messiah was supposed to be. And so you've got the questions that have been stirring that you've been too afraid to ask him. I believe the invitation this morning is to bring those questions to Jesus, bring those areas of your life that you've tried to keep hidden to Jesus. But the reality is that those temptations are actually spiritual warfare. It's crazy to me here. Did you catch this in verse 27? There it says, after Judas received the bread and the wine from Jesus, it says, verse 27, then Satan entered into him, and he began levitating, and his head began spinning around in circles. <laughs> oh, wait, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not it, that's not it. It says, after that, Satan entered into him, and he began to speak in a low, strange, spooky voice, right? No, it doesn't say that. All it says is, and Satan entered into him. And so sometimes I think when you and I, when we think of spiritual warfare, we tend to think of like the poltergeist and there's furniture flying around the room and things are all crazy. Uh, But one of the things we like to say here at Redemption is life is naturally supernatural. And what that means is that the spirit of God is present even in the mundane, even in the everyday. But the reality check is the enemy is too. And the way that spiritual warfare shows up is often way more subtle than the poltergeist kind of exorcist images in films, right? Like, it's in the everyday. The disciples looking around the table, Satan enters into Judas. They don't see it. They don't notice it. They're still wondering, what's going on? Who's just talking about? Like, you know, he's sending Judas to, Judas to go buy groceries or something. Like, like, they don't get what's going on because it looks natural, and yet it is naturally supernatural. There is a bigger plot at work right now in the story that you are living in. And the reality is the enemy's tactics are way more subtle. There may be temptations that you are experiencing and feeling right now that you think that's just my thoughts. That's just this whatever. And the reality is that's the enemy seeking to get into your skin. He's, he's, He's coming at you. He's trying to tempt you and come after you. And so some of the ways that subtleness can look like, it can be as simple as, man, when when your friends said that to you, what they really meant was, da, 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 da. and you're spinning out in your head all the crazy things and how malevolent they must be, and, they, and you haven't even gone to them to ask yet, to clarify, to double check. 
There may be some of you who are written, getting ready to double cross and sell a friend down the river, and it's just partly because you haven't actually taken the work or the time to listen charitably to what they've said and to go to them and seek clarification. And the reality is those temptations are spiritual warfare. They're naturally supernatural. And yet here's what I love about the scene is that even in the midst of all this, Jesus is still sovereign over what's happening. His words to Judas after Satan entered into him, Jesus said to him, verse 27, what you're going to do, do quickly. It's like Jesus is ordering him around, right? Like, it's like, dude, you're conspiring against me, but I see you. And I'm actually going to order you around. Like, go, what are you going to do? Go, go do it quickly. I've got this uh, buddy, Seth, and <clears throat> he's married now. Uh, but back in the day before him and his wife were married, uh, they were dating. And um, she had some close friends who didn't like him. And he knew they didn't like him. And they had all kind of, they were having an intervention, right? So they had set up this meeting to get, you get together with her. And he knew she was going to meet with them. And he knew they didn't like him. And so he knew what was going on. So when he got the text after the meeting and she said, hey, we need to talk, he knew what was coming, right? And so she was driving. And when she pulled into his driveway, he said, you know, I was laid out on the, on, on the driveway. And, you know, she parks, opens the door, gets out of the car. And he kind of gets up and he looks at her and he says, what you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> he's like I know what's coming but just get it over with let's do this quickly let's kind of deal with it but that's kind of the picture here is like Jesus sees it coming Jesus is not like Julius Caesar caught off guard caught by surprise in the most famous betrayal in history Jesus sees it coming he says I see you I know what you're about to do and what you're about to do do quickly and John wants us to see here that Jesus is sovereign even over the cross. He's not avoiding it. He's calling it out and he's moving towards it. That what Judas intends for evil, God is intending for good. You see, Jesus is going after the cross. He says elsewhere in John, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. What we find in the gospel is that the cross is not simply happening to Jesus. Jesus is happening to the cross. He is taking on the powers of sin, death, and hell, and he is doing it for you and I. And so when he says to Judas, what you are about to do, do quickly, it is because he knows this is not only Judas's evil plan, this is part of God's good plan to save and redeem the world from sin. So Jesus allows himself to be betrayed so that you and I can know ourselves as his beloved. He said again, Jesus allows himself to be betrayed so that you and I can know ourselves as his beloved. What the cross represents is not simply the betrayal of Judas. It's way too small. What the cross represents is the betrayal of the world against God. And Jesus is going to deal with it so that you and I can be reconciled to God and restored to life with him. Jesus is a jaguar and the cross is his prey. John wants us to see that he is sovereign, even over the cross. Now, the craziest thing, what blows me away in all this, is no one wants to come Jesus' posture towards Judas. You would expect Jesus would be lit up, angry, defiant, like giving him the stink eye, whatever, right? But we actually see here is that Jesus serves him communion. We read that he dips the morsel, this bread and this wine he has just identified with his body and his blood, 
and he gives it to Judas. Not only that, he washes Judas's feet. The same scene we looked at last week in John 13 when Jesus bends down and takes the position of a servant and he washes the feet of his disciples. And what was it like as he washed the dirt from Judas's feet? And Jesus says here in verse 18, a little earlier, he says, he quotes the scripture saying, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a picture of betrayal. So when the one I had fellowship with who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, it's a sign of, of betrayal, of turning against him. And can you imagine, just imagine for the power of the scene, Jesus is washing the foot that he knows is about to stomp him. Jesus is washing the foot that he knows is about to stomp him. There are some of you this morning who may be on the verge of betraying Jesus and in your head, you're thinking, I'm too far gone. Maybe he, you'd go, he does see me. He knows the darkness in my heart and it's too much. I just gotta cut ties and run because you're assuming that Jesus is against you. And what you need to see this morning, if you are on the verge of walking away, if you are on the verge of betraying Jesus, or if you even have, is that Jesus loves you all the way to the end that Jesus serves you communion. He offers you his body broken for you and his blood shed for you, that Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and he takes the posture of a servant ready to wash your feet even when he knows you're about to stomp him with it. Jesus sees you. He not only sees what you're about to do, but he sees why you're about to do it. The expectations you wanted him to meet that he hasn't, the ways that, you thought this was gonna look different. Your life was gonna be in a different spot right now and it hasn't. Jesus sees you. And the invitation is to stop running from the one you were made for and to turn to the one who sees you and knows you inside and out. All right, well, we've seen Jesus speak to the betrayed and the betrayer. In the final scene, we see him speak to his disciples, his church, those who have experienced betrayal from within their own ranks. So let's pick up here in verse 28. We read, now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. We find in this scene is that you and I, we don't need to panic when people betray Jesus because he's got this. Jesus has got this. We find here the disciples are confused. It says, verse 29, that, or verse 28, like no one knew why he said this. Jesus, is, Jesus sees what's going on, but they don't. And so they're confused going, Jesus, what is he talking about? Someone's gonna betray him. Who's gonna do it? How's it gonna happen? You know? And uh, it says that they were confused because uh, he had the money bag. They're thinking, man, because Jesus gave him the credit card, like he's going, hey, go buy some stuff for the feast, some of them are thinking. So some think he's like, dude, you just run down to Sprouts, get some more lamb chops, bring it back for the, the feast, right? And others are going, no, it's not that. It's, he's got the money bag. He's got the, so he, he wants to give some to the poor. Some think he's like, dude, Judas, go make my donation for Tempe 10, right? And so they're confused. Now, the irony is in a strange way, they're right. 
Jesus, the reason Judas is going, Judas is preparing the Passover meal in a weird sense, right? Like he is handing over Jesus, the true Passover lamb, who will be slain for the sin of the world to the Roman authorities who are gonna do it. And in another way, Judas, Judas is going out to give to the poor. He is handing over the one that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, it says that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor, yet for your sake became poor, that you and I might become rich. So in a sense, Judas is helping prepare the Passover meal and is doing some of the poor, but not in the way that the disciples think. John wants us to see here that the disciples are confused about what is going on which means that just because Jesus knows what's going on doesn't mean that Christians do, right? Just because Jesus can see the playing field and the dynamics of what's happening doesn't mean that you and I can, and we can find ourselves confused. The disciples are gonna find themselves even more confused in a minute when Jesus gets betrayed, right? And everything rolls down. And yet the power I believe John wants to see in this picture is that even in the midst of our confusion, Jesus has got this. Now, some of us have experienced betrayal. You might be in a spot where you've experienced betrayal from people you've trusted, and it's confusing. I remember years ago, about over 10 years ago, um, a church I was a part of, uh, another church, um, but we had an elder who it came out had been having an affair, like a long-term affair. And it was really awkward the way it went down because uh, in the preceding season, he had kind of been going through this um, deconstruction process, like asking these big questions about, I just don't know if I can believe in a God anymore, who? And so we're trying to work with him through it. And, and yeah, I don't know if you should be an elder then, if whatever, you know, but what, what, uh, what, what happened, you know, and I'm not saying everyone who goes through a deconstruction process, that's why, but for some folks at times, there can be a desire to justify the trajectory you're wanting to go on, right? And what came out later is that even before this deconstruction process had begun starting, he had been started, he had started this affair. And the reality was because he was in leadership at that level, you know, he, he, he owned it, uh, you know, he owned it publicly with us. Um, and, but he ended up leaving his family, ended up leaving uh, his church, I mean, ended up leaving the community. And it was a really painful and confusing process. I think many of us were going, dude, I mean, including me, I was going, dude, I, I trusted you. I, I've been following you. You are not just a buddy. You're like a mentor, someone who I've looked to to help shape me in the life of the gospel. And when all that kind of came out, it's like, dude, that felt like a betrayal. It was a betrayal. God, as some of you have experienced betrayal from leaders that you followed who had, it came out, man, they weren't walking the straight and narrow. Or with mentors who had even shaped the life of Jesus in you and they let you down. Some of you have people you've loved who've turned away from Jesus, who, who walked away and it's painful knowing, God, what do, I, what do I do with this? Now, the beautiful reality though is knowing What's helpful is to know that Jesus has got this. We can find comfort knowing Jesus has got this. A friend of mine this week was talking about how uh, someone in ministry nationally, uh, elsewhere, and he was talking about how, um, man, he, he had been seriously a lot of disillusionment this last season because people that he, he thought, you know, they were in life together with Christ and then they had some other ideology, idolatry, something they, they, they turned away and went away. He's just like going, 
man, it's really disillusioning when these people that you thought you were in it with um, just bail, you know, bail on Jesus, bail on the community, bail on everything. Uh, but then a friend of his, the epiphany for him was when a friend told him, it was like, well, you keep saying the word disillusioned like it's a bad thing. And the reality is, if you have an illusion, it's actually good when it gets lifted because Jesus deals in reality. And I would suggest what if at times when some of these things get exposed, whether with leaders or mentors or friends, at times these things that feel like it's like these skeletons coming out of the closet that have been in the dark for a while, what if it's a foretaste of Jesus' judgment that's coming at the end of the world? Because what we find is that God is committed to weeding out the hypocrisy of dealing with the wolves in the sheep pen and the wheat amongst the weeds, or the weeds amongst the wheat, right? Like, I think sometimes we have this caricature of God's judgment that it's like everyone who went to church is in and everybody who didn't is out, right? But that's not the picture that we see in the Gospels. When Jesus talks about judgment, one of his chief characteristics, perhaps his primary characteristic, is that its outcome is a surprise. When Jesus shows up, you find insiders getting weeded out and outsiders being gathered in. You find the prodigals and prostitutes running into the kingdom and you find the Pharisees and upstanding citizens who thought their own clothes were good enough cast outside. You find shock and awe, astonishment and reversal. You find many who said, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus was like, I don't even know you. And you got others who are like, Lord, when did we see you? When did we do that? When did we know you? And Jesus is like, I've known you all along. God's judgment will be a day of su surprise, of shock and awe, of reversal, but it's not random. It's not like God's picking names out of a hat or something, right? Like, it's that Jesus is dealing with reality. He's lifting the illusions. So the comfort and confidence that you and I can take in the midst of that is knowing that Jesus has got this. The confidence we have is not in knowing the outcome of all the ins and outs and intricacies of God's judgment. The confidence is not in that. The confidence is that we know who the judge is that it's Jesus and he is a good judge. He is a better judge than you and I. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to do this right. And so we can take confidence and trust in him because the judge, the one who will judge the world is the one who gave his life to redeem the world. That means Jesus loves that person that you love even more than you do. Like he's given his life. And we can take confidence and trust. Some of you need this morning the confidence and peace that comes with knowing Jesus has got this in a confusing, mucked up, messed up world of knowing Jesus has got this and I can stake my confidence, not in me having it all figured out, but I can stake my confidence in him. So the invitation this morning, as we come to the table, we come to Christ's body the bread and the wine, a sign of Christ's body broken for us, a sign of Christ's blood shed for us. And as we prepare to come to the table, we're gonna come as we have the last two weeks during worship and invite you to take your time and come as you feel led, as you feel ready uh, while we're singing. Uh, but as we prepare to come to the table, I wanna invite you into a time of prayer before Jesus, the one who was betrayed in order that you and I could know ourselves as beloved. He's the one that we come to. So would you close your eyes with me? Would you imagine, if you will, Jesus and even his posture towards you, his face towards you? I believe there are some of you this morning who 
have been betrayed. And Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would minister to your people. Deeper than any words that I could say, God, the power of your word and the power of your spirit, Lord, minister to your people, we pray. There are some of you this morning who have been betrayed. Maybe you're trapped in that cycle of bitterness and resentment. Holy Spirit, would you minister to those in this room who've been wounded, who've been betrayed by those close to them, those they trusted. Jesus, thank you that you know what it's like to be betrayed. You know what it's like to be stabbed in the back. You have felt the deep troubling in spirit, the distress. Identify with your people, Lord, when they know your presence with them and also would you set them free knowing that Jesus doesn't have to have the last word on their story. That God, you are the keeper of their reputation. Just also pray for those in the room who are possibly on the verge of betrayal, possibly on the verge of turning towards a road that leads to destruction. And uh, man, Jesus, I pray they would see you and your, your face towards them, their posture towards them. Thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of the, that place, you bend down on one knee to wash their feet, that you serve them communion, your body given and your blood shed. Thank you that you've given yourself for us, even in our betrayal. Lord, I pray that they would know that truth and turn to you, turn back to you, Lord, heart and soul and mind and strength, the one who we are made for. And finally, Lord, I pray for any of us in this room who've experienced the confusion of seeing people betray you, Jesus, in the church. People turn and walk away. People have secrets that come out of the closet. People have those that we trusted, let us down. Jesus, we praise you that you have got this. God, we wanna stake our confidence not in what we can see or know or us having it all figured out. We stake our confidence this morning in you, Jesus. Jesus, you are the one who was betrayed so that we could know ourselves as your beloved. And so God, we wanna enter in and we wanna worship as your beloved community, Lord, as people who, whose hearts have been captivated by you, the king of all the earth. Lord, you have a reign that's bigger than Julius Caesar's, God. It's, it's bigger than any, uh, any country on earth, God. You are Lord of heaven and earth. And God, we turn our hearts towards you in a response of worship and gratitude for the great sacrifice that you've made that we could be reconciled to you and that all things could ultimately and eventually be restored. And so we worship and we praise you, Jesus, as your beloved church. Amen.